Well, hey, good morning again, everybody, and I want to say welcome to worship again, and to those of you who are here in our contemporary service, also I know some of you are joining us by video right now in our traditional sanctuary and online, and I'm glad that you're here. We have this opportunity to join together and learn some really important things, to learn about the hope of God in Jesus Christ and to learn about the way of God that's revealed to us in Jesus Christ. In fact, speaking of being revealed, we started a new series last week on the book of Revelation. We started this new series last week on Revelation, which is this complicated book full of crazy imagery, and I want to just, in case you were missing last week, or even if you weren't, kind of catch you up a little bit, we can hold off on that for a minute, and give you a little review of where we came from last week. If you were here last week, you might remember that the book of Revelation, it's the last book in the New Testament, and it's actually a letter. I think a lot of people don't know that, but Revelation is a letter. And almost 2,000 years ago, it was a letter that was written to seven ancient churches, seven little Christian communities in what is now modern-day Western Turkey. And these little house churches, little communities of Christians, received the letter that is now the book of Revelation. And we learned that if we could understand how it was written as a letter to them and what it meant to them, then we would be better equipped to understand what it means for us. So let me just quickly remind you what we learned last week so that we're prepared to understand as we get into the meat of the book of Revelation today. We learned that some of those churches that received this letter were churches that were suffering churches. They were hurting people. They were in all kinds of afflictions. And then like one of those cities where one of those churches was called Smyrna. And the Smyrnan Christians, that's hard to say, Smyrnan, Smyrnan Christians. It sounds like I don't know how to say it. The marbles in my mouth. The Smyrnan Christians were suffering people. And when they heard that the Lord Jesus was alive, they were reminded he was alive, and that he was walking among this vision of seven golden lampstands that represented seven churches. He walked among them, and Jesus was saying, I'm not dead, I'm alive, and I've got you. I know, I know what you're suffering, and this is not the end of the story. It's going to be okay. I got you. Hold on. And his word to the suffering churches was a word that said, be patient, be faithful, endure patiently, and hold on. This is hard, but hold on. I got you. And then we learned there were other churches, other kinds of Christians, other Christian communities who were kind of on the opposite end of the experience spectrum. They were not suffering anything at all. They were feeling just fine, thank you very much. And in their life situation, they were what you might call complacent. They were asleep at the switch. They're like, fine, life's good, whatever. Yeah, Jesus is really cool. I'll go to church once a month and whatever. That's fine. And Jesus' word to them was, I am coming like a thief in the night. You don't know when, so it'd be a good idea if you would wake up right now. And he used the image, he said, it's not too late for you, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone opens the door to me, and, and this is not in the Bible, so I could be making this part up, and if it's wrong, I apologize, but I kind of imagine that the image is, if anyone opens the door to me before I have to kick it down, <laughs> then I will come in and dine with that person, and they with me. It's not too late, Jesus knows that you're sinful, that you're wandering, okay, that's true. but I'm coming, and, and this is the moment, turn now, wake up. The first people heard, hold on. This group heard, wake up, and turn back to me. And then there was this group in the middle that honestly I feel more kinship with. Maybe, maybe you do too, I'm not sure. But the, these churches, like one of them was in this ancient city called Ephesus. And if I were going to describe them, I wouldn't say suffering and I wouldn't say asleep. I think I would say compromised or assimilated. They knew the Lord. They knew Jesus. They were trying to serve him. They carried out various acts of love. They were building their, their community together. And yet they were constantly under this temptation to trade in their identity in Christ for a different identity, to compromise their values that they learned as a community following Jesus with the values of the world around them, and always trying to see like, okay, maybe we can fit in this way, maybe life is really more for this. And Jesus' word to them was the same as to the suffering, I'm walking among you, it's going to be okay, 
Or to the sleepy, I'm walking among you, wake up, I'm coming back. To the compromised, I'm walking among you, don't go over there, come this way. In, in other words, the biblical language for turn back is repent. Make a course correction. You're living for the counterfeit, I'm offering you the real. Turn, turn back to me. And we learned that Revelation was written to people in, in seven different churches that kind of were scattered among these three different kinds of circumstances. And if we can understand how it was written to them, then we can understand how it was written for us. And today we're turning kind of into what I would consider the center, into the beating heart of the book of Revelation. And, and some truth is going to be revealed to us in all these different kinds of circumstances. To, to understand that, let me first give you an illustration. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever, like, read any books or TV shows or movies or whatever, where you kind of were understanding the story for a while, but then, like, at the end or some point, there's this big reveal, and all of a sudden you realize the story didn't mean what you thought it meant, right? Everything is different than how it started. Like, for me, one example is, um, I've been really into the TV series Sherlock lately. I finished watching season four on Netflix just not that long ago, and I kind of want to start over because it's too smart for me. It's so dense and complicated. I want to just start over. And because that's how it works, right? So you understand it at one level, and Sherlock, who's this brilliant, genius, crime-solving savant, comes into these crime scenes that the bubble, bumbling idiot detectives from Scotland Yard, who are probably some of England's finest, some of the smartest, right? But they don't see it, and Sherlock shows up, and he's like, well, her collar is wet, and she's wearing a ring, and she has shoes on. Can't you understand that she's from California? You know, or whatever, I don't know. <laughs> but he sees stuff that nobody else sees, right? And then at the end of the episode, and it turns out really at the end of all four seasons, there's stuff that's revealed that makes sense of the earlier stuff, right? And so the, the, the narrative, the drama that you were living in, and as a viewer, I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to make sense of it all the way along. And I realize I'm like dumber than the bumbling idiots from Scotland Yard by the time I get to the end. And I find out that what made sense at one level actually makes a whole nother kind of sense once I get the reveal, right? Or one more example for those of you who may not have seen or care about Sherlock. Um, I'll be more obscure. Anybody see the old movie, uh, The Sixth Sense? This is actually a long time ago now. All right, if a movie is 20 years old, and this one is, do I have to say spoiler alert, or we kind of, statute of limitations is passed on that, right? Okay, I did, I said it, so la 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 if you don't want to hear, okay? So uh, what turns out by the end of the movie, the main character, played by Bruce Willis, just a really record for you, by the end of the movie, it turns out the main character you've been watching the whole time is actually dead. And you've just been watching his ghost like the entire time. And so you thought the movie meant one thing, you thought you understood the story, and you find out that he's actually dead, and you're like, oh, <laughs> This movie meant a whole different thing. It was a different story than I thought it was, okay? That, I think, is how the book of Revelation begins to function for us now. That, like, the curtain is being pulled back. We're getting a glimpse behind the scenes. This is the big reveal. And we go, we were living our lives, and we experienced it one way, and we thought one thing was true. And from one perspective, it is true. It is our life. And yet we're going to, like, open the door and look behind the scenes and go, oh, there's a whole nother level to truth beyond what I realized, what I was experiencing, all right? So I'm going to stop talking about it now. We're going to look at it. If you have a Bible with you, open it up, Revelation chapter 24. This is on page 1821. You can remember that because it's the year Dan was born, right? 1821, Revelation. Um, if you're joining us by video, he said that earlier. I didn't make that up. All right. Uh, page 1821, Revelation chapter 4. Just setting the context for you while you're getting there. Remember that Revelation, it's a letter, it's written by a guy named John. We call him John of Patmos because he was a Christian in the late first century AD and he'd been exiled onto an island in the Mediterranean called Patmos. And while he was there praying, 
Jesus gave him a vision. He received this like spiritual vision for a big reveal, to see that there's more to the world than meets the eye. And first he wrote down this opening stuff. Jesus said, write this to these seven churches. So he did. And then, now this is the kind of next step in that revelation. Revelation 4.1. After this, I, John, looked, and there before me was a door standing open into heaven. Right? I could see a peek into like ultimate reality. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet, that was how he described Jesus' voice early on. We're about to see this like 10 or 100 times, that when, when John receives spiritual revelation, it defies normal language to describe it. It's hard to get that across in words. So he said the voice was like a trumpet. It's not that it was a trumpet, but that's the best thing I can compare it to is it was like a trumpet. We're going to see more of this. And that voice said to me, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And sometimes when we read something or hear something like that, we want to like launch into this whole scenario of battles and conflicts and what's going to take place. But when John hears that, the first thing that he sees actually isn't a scenario. It's a, it's a reality. It's a look into the heavenly throne room. And that's what we're going to see here first. John says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, with someone sitting on it. <laughs> Why did he have to say that? Do you ever think that maybe, the, does the world ever feel to you like no one's holding the steering wheel, right? Like, is somebody in charge of this mess? I, I, think, I take this very, as great comfort. Someone is sitting on the throne. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby, again, grasping for language. What does a person look like who looks like red stones? A, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. In my mind, rainbows have many colors. Emeralds are green, but somehow both these things are true. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. How glorious. And seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. But their crown, but the one in the middle is above all them. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Okay, I could keep going, but I'm going to stop for a second. It's this glorious, incredible, majestic, transcendent vision of the throne room of God. And I think what this is supposed to do to us when we see it differs based on where we're living in life, right? Let's imagine that we are Smyrnan Christians, right? And we're suffering. And the powers of this world have us down. And this is a reminder that the powers of this world that think they are something and that exploit us and hurt us and oppress us, that, that they're pretenders to the throne. It may feel like there's nobody in charge of this and they really have all the power, but there is a throne and there is somebody sitting on it. Jesus says, I'm walking among the lamps and God is on the throne and everything's going to be all right. I got you. Hold on, right? But what if we're people who are real impressed with the power of this world? What if people who think like, oh man, the emperor's throne room, that's really where it's at. And I don't know in our world if we really think like that anymore. I mean, some people maybe are really impressed with like the queen of England or the king of whoever knows where in the world. But I wonder what like power and glory and celebrity status we admire and we are over impressed with in our world. You know, I don't know. Is it, is it governmental leadership? Is it, is it economic leadership? Is it business leadership? Is it, is it celebrities and entertainment leadership? And I think one effect of this is to say to us, stop being so impressed with all that counterfeit stuff. There really is a God who is bigger than all that. And I know you hunger for glory, but that ain't it. <laughs> this is what God is really like, right? Okay, so at one level it functions that way, but we're about to see something. We, 
we might have imagined that. You know, we, we might, left to our own imagination, say, if there is a God, then God is probably like my imagination of power, but more powerful. Like my imagination of awesome, but more awesome. But we're about to find out that God had something more in mind than that. Okay, so now chapter 5. Uh, Quest Bibles, page 1822, Revelation 5.1. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, so like the wisdom of the king, of God, with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. It's all sealed up. People at Kings would put like wax seals marked with a sign of their signet ring so they would know that it was authentic. It's all sealed up. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who's worthy? Who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? How are we going to find out? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. Like, it kind of like looked like a tube inside the scroll or something. You couldn't look. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. We're never going to find out. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals, right? The tremendous power, the power of a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. All the early Christian readers of this book, anyone who'd ever read the part of the Bible we now call the Old Testament, would go like, well, that's the Messiah. And if you were a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you're like, well, that's Jesus. Jesus is worthy. He's got all the power. Terrific. And this is what John heard from the elder, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy. That's what he heard. And then in verse 6, and then I looked and I saw a lamb? What a letdown, right? I was expecting a lion, and I saw this thing, mutton, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And again, those first Christians in those seven cities would have been like, well, I thought that was Jesus, but that's Jesus. He's the lion, and he's the lamb, right? This is what the power of God really looks like. We think that real power is just being stronger than everybody else, is whatever they are times 10, right? But what is revealed to John is that real glory, the real image of God, the revelation of God, isn't that God is like you but better, but that God is like the Lamb, that the Lord Jesus, that God's King was slain, that he laid down his life for others. Laid down his life for others. That's what it looks like. And then this is how they worship him. If we jump ahead to verse 9, Revelation 5, 9, and 10, the people around the throne, they sang a new song. Not a song we would have made up, but a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. They will be what God always made humanity to be, serving him faithfully, reflecting him to the world. Now, this is, this is a parody of what worldly power thinks it's supposed to be, Right? I mean, every worldly ruler, all the kings of this age, they were trying to make one people. They were trying to make one empire out of persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Whether it was Rome or Parthia or Carthage or whoever was trying to rule the world, right? They were trying to get everybody into their kingdom. And how did they do it? They spilled those people's blood, right? They shed their blood. They made war. They killed. And they said, aren't you glad to be part of our people now? You're under us now. But Jesus is worshipped. You are worthy to do this because with your blood... You purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them to be a kingdom under God. And the people cry out in worship. 
I think there's something in, in the constitution of us humans. There's something in our hearts and in our souls that sees the, man, the, the incarnation, the embodiment of divine selfless love in Jesus and responds in worship. There's something like deeply programmed into our operating systems that knows that this is supposed to be the operating system of the world. This is what it was made for, and Jesus shows us and invites us to reign under him, invites us to represent God to the world with him in his way, in the way of the lion and the lamb. Not that the lamb is a loser, the, still the lion by way of the lamb, right? And this is our glimpse into reality. We thought one thing was true. We were living in one narrative and one drama, and the big reveal happens, and we open the door and look into heaven and go, oh, there is somebody on the throne, and he looks like that. Praise God, right? Okay, that's a vision into the heavenly throne room. But now John's vision continues, and rather than just stargazing and looking at heaven, he's going to return the vision back back down to earth again, right? So it's like a cycle. We're in heaven, and the vision cycles back down to earth, right? Okay, let's turn to Revelation chapter 6. John says, this is on page 1823 of uh, your Quest Bibles, Revelation 6. We're going to read about eight verses. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals, right? So now the Lamb was worthy. He's opening the seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures in the throne room say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. This is a war horse, right? And we see this rider coming out into the experience of human life on earth, and, and war and conquest is part of what we experience in this lower-level drama on earth, right? That's one, one reality. Next, verse 3. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And then another horse came out, a fiery red one, and its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. And to him was given a large sword. And we've gone from kind of the threat of distant violence, of armies on the horizon who, who, who conquer by bow and arrow, who, who kill from afar, to a level of interpersonal violence and violence among us. A sword doesn't reach nearly as far and peace has been taken from us. This is part of the reality of what we experience in this lower level drama. And then verse 5, when the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked, and there before me was a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand, right, for measuring out quantities. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and wine. At first, is anybody else like, what? <laughs> what does that mean? War, violence, and now commerce. And in this case, unjust commerce. This is a picture of poverty and economic injustice. What if you had to work your whole income, everything you could earn in one day, your whole one day's income? Some of you maybe could do the math on that. Some of you are like, no, thank you. But think about that. If everything you could earn could only buy wheat, that's all you could get. What if you needed butter to go with that wheat? What if you needed vegetables? What if you needed rent? What if you needed clothing? What if you needed bus fare? What if you needed something else besides that? Sorry, no good. Your income is not sufficient to your needs, right? Oh, but, but the oil and the wine, the luxury goods that Herod needs, that Caesar needs, that the wealthy need, that the elite and powerful need, don't damage those. We're going to be just fine with that. But the people who, who depend on their daily laborer's wage to buy wheat and barley, tough luck for you, right? The third horse brings this part of our experience of life on this earth of poverty and economic injustice. And then when the lamb opened the fourth seal, 
I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Man, that's eerie sounding. A pale horse. And its rider was named Death. And Hades was following close behind him. And they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, right? By, by violence and by deprivation and by disease and sickness and by the wild beasts of the earth. And, and sickness and suffering and death of all kinds is part of our experience of, this, of life on this earth, of, of, of our real lives, of this drama that we're living in the middle of. And we've just seen the heavenly throne room. We've seen the victory of God and the glory of God, and now we're looking back at, at the lower-level drama again. And some of us might ask ourselves, what's the relationship between those things? How is this happening while this is happening? You know, the book of Revelation doesn't, I don't think it's trying to give us some full answer. It doesn't investigate the question of why is there evil in the world or where does suffering come from. But I think the narrative events that we're reading from is consistent with the larger story that we find in the Bible. And that is that these kinds of powers, this kind of stuff happens within the larger, within the purview and by the permission of the larger power of God. And that this happens by the permission of God, that God permits this to go on in the world, that God permits there to be suffering because God has already permitted there to be human freedom. That God has given us freedom and we have not used it wisely. We have lived in rebellion against God and we have created violence and war and deprivation and poverty and all this kind of stuff. And we're living in this drama down here. The question, I think, when we read this, though, that, that Jesus is trying to reveal through John, speak through John to those early Christians and also for us, isn't just where did it all come from as a philosophical question, but as a practical question, which side of this are you going to be on? Which, which, which side of this are, are you living for? And I think it kind of depends. Are we like the Smyrnan Christians? <laughs> or are we like the ones in Sardis or Laodicea? Are we suffering or are we on top of the heap and we're complacent? Because I, I know, and I think, that, I think that probably in a lot of our lives, and certainly within our community and within a large community of the church, we're kind of on both sides of this, right? I know that in our lives there is, there is disease and there is suffering, the equivalent of famine and plague, and there is death, that there is tragedy in our lives. That within this very room there are those of us who are, who are ill, who are sick, whose bodies are breaking, who have cancer, who are suffering, and are looking kind of death in the eyeballs. Maybe it's loved ones. Brothers, sisters, friends, parents, children, God have mercy, are sick and are dying, right? This is part of what we're experiencing. Well, maybe we're the victims of economic injustice, poverty, living paycheck to paycheck but falling behind and just can't seem to get ahead in life, cycles of generational poverty. Maybe it's, maybe it's violence, it's interpersonal violence. Within your story or the story of your family, there's abuse in your home or in larger systems. This is part of what we're living with suffering the fruits of war and conquest. If it's not you, it's plenty of other people in the world. There are millions of refugees fleeing from war zones all around the world. And Jesus shows us, he reveals to us that he is really alive and that he's not just some lion who strides across it all unscathed, but he's been the lamb who has entered into our experience, who has suffered even death itself with us and for us and triumphed over it by the cross and by his resurrection and now walks among us and says, I am alive, and I walk among the church, and I've got you. I've got you. Hold on. This is your present reality, but this is not how the story ends. This is not where we're going. Hold on. I've got you. But at the same time, I think if we read this, we recognize that sometimes, or maybe some parts of us are on the other side of the divide, that maybe we are those who are profiting from the exploitation of others, 
that maybe it's the injustice toward them that's actually pushed us up. Maybe we're kind of not only the victims of the problem, but we're also the perpetrators of the problem. Maybe we are the ones who are perpetrators of violence against others. And if not personally, maybe we're just really fascinated by it and we love it in our entertainment and we're immune to it. Maybe we're in that kind of system. Maybe we're not the ones who are the war refugees or those who are creating them, but maybe we're the ones who are turning a blind eye toward them and we're on the other side of this thing. And, and if that's where we are, then I think even while part of us needs to hear the word, hold on, I've got you, I'm here for you, this is not how it ends, part of us might need to hear the word, this is not how it's going to end and you might want to wake up now before it's too late. Maybe you want to get off that side because that side doesn't win in the end. God wins. Jesus wins by this way, not by that way. And maybe there's also a word here to us that says, wake up and course correct, turn, repent. Right? This is true too. We've seen truth in heaven. We've seen truth on the earth. And now in, uh, in chapter 7, we're going to cycle back up again. We're going to cycle back up to a picture uh, of a, another vision of the heavenly throne room. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. And we're going to go to verse 4, Revelation 7, 4. John says, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. In other words, kind of marked out by God for protection. These are going to, these are going to be okay. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gab, 12,000 from 12 tribes, right? Huge number, supposed to be a symbol of completeness, which is really good news for somebody else. Most of us are Gentiles, right? Good for them, God will save them. What about us, right? Okay, now let's turn to verse 9. After this I looked, John said, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hand. Now, now are those, those maybe two different groups of those who are rescued? It could be. I think a lot of people have read Revelation that way. You've got 144,000 from the story of Israel, from the history of Israel, and then this other great multitude of everybody else. But I also kind of wonder if maybe we're reading that a little too literally. Remember in chapter 5 when John heard that there was a lion and saw that the lion was a lamb? And now he hears his 144,000 from Israel, and he sees a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. I mean, I wonder if this is just two different ways of revealing the completion, the fullness. Even the number 144,000 is meant to stand for this really wideness, this completion and fullness. At, at any rate, whether it's two different people or whether it's the same people, that God has marked us out. He's marked out the followers of Jesus for rescue, for salvation from all this. And in fact, that's what we find out. Let's jump down to verse 13 in chapter 7. Then one of the elders, one of the people in this throne room, asked me, that's John of Patmos, one of them asked me in this vision, these in white robes, this giant assembly, who are they and where do they come from? Like it's some sort of quiz or test. John, do you understand? And John had the right answer. He said, sir, you know. <laughs> and the elder said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. Now, I don't know if you've ever read Revelation before or if you're familiar with that word. The word tribulation is sometimes taken to refer to a very specific event in kind of a laid out end time scenario, a particularly intense moment of affliction and trial. And that is a possible way to read this. But in context, I wonder if it doesn't just mean the tribulation, the suffering, the trials that come from the consequences of the four horsemen, the economic injustice and the violence and the war and the sickness. That's enough tribulation for me, honestly. These are they who have come out of that great suffering. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, obviously, this is metaphorical, symbolic language. Nothing gets white by dipping it in blood, right? This is a description of those 
who have turned over their brokenness, who have turned over their complicitness and sin to Jesus, and he has offered them the grace that he offers to everybody, right? When, when, I, when I talk about those of us who are suffering and afflicted by this and those of us who are on the wrong side of this deal, like, I, think, I think Jesus would want to say to us, I'm not, I, I knew you were sinful. It wasn't, it's not a surprise to Jesus that we got on the wrong side of this thing, right? And that's the great multitude aren't those who have lived perfect lives, aren't those who are unstained by sin. They are those who have simply said, I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. And Jesus welcomes them into his people. Therefore, verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne, the almighty God of heaven and earth, he will shelter them with his presence. They've been rescued from all this suffering. Never again will they hunger Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. The, the lamb is also the good shepherd who will lead back his sheep who are wandering down every trail, who are attacked by wolves on every side. The lamb will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of living water, not to the counterfeit stuff that we settle for, but to living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Think that Jesus would speak through Revelation to us. As, as he wrote to the seven churches, I think he'd have a question for us based on this multi-level drama that we're living at one level, we've gotten a glimpse of something else and kind of seen a little bit about how it's all related to, to itself. I think that Jesus would ask us, which of these two truths are you living for? Because this is truth, and this is also truth. Which of these truths are you living for? And, and it's not, which of these truths are you living in? Because that's the whole deal. We're, we, this is truth. We're living in it. But which of these truths are you living for? For which of these truths are you making choices, ordering your priorities, shaping your relationships, shaping the decisions of your life, the direction of your life? Which of these truths are you living for? And if, if I'm being honest, and I'd encourage you to be honest right now in your hearts too, if I'm being honest, I've got way too much invested in this lower-level truth down here. I, I, I've got way too much of my imagination that's way too impressed by power and profit in this world. I'm making way too many decisions based on values that are real temporary. I think I'm living way too much for myself. And, and maybe, maybe you are too in your heart. Maybe you're living for this too. And I think this is a warning to us. This is a gracious opportunity to hear the word of Jesus that says to the Laodicean Christian in me or the Ephesian Christian in me, wake up, dude. Wake up. Okay, he probably didn't say dude. Wake up. <laughs> Course correction. Repent. Stop settling for the counterfeit. Turn back to the real. Because what, what feels like truth, what is truth from one perspective right now, it's going to turn out in some point in your life where you're going to have been living your life for a lie. And that is not worth it. And it is a mercy that truth is revealed to us, right? But then I think the last word that Jesus gives to us, well, it's the last word of this section, and in a grander sense, I think it's the final word that we're going to hear from Revelation week in and week out for a couple more weeks. It is a word of hope. It's a word of forgiveness. It's a word of grace. It's, it's not a surprise to Jesus that you are enmeshed in the sin and the false values of this world. He knows. He knows. And those whom he rescues are not those who are perfect. They are those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, who have been made white, who have been saved by his grace, by his grace. 
And the word that Jesus speaks to us at the end, this invitation to follow him, are the last words from Revelation 7. The lamb at the center of the throne, he will be your shepherd. He will bring you back from the places where you have wandered. He will fight off the wolves that are attacking. The lamb at the center of the throne, he will be your shepherd. He will lead you to springs of living water. All the lukewarm, bitter water that you're settling for that was the best you thought you could get at this level, Jesus says, I will give you living water. And God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And there is plenty of reason to have tears. There is plenty of things to mourn. There is plenty of affliction over the pain in our lives, over the pain in our world, over our labors with Jesus for justice in the world and for peace and compassion and selfless love in the world. There's plenty of reason to mourn now, but that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, from yours. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are glorious. You are the king. There is someone on the throne of this world, and it's you. And thank God it's not us. Thank God it's not anybody else we were impressed with, but it's you. You have revealed yourself to us in the lamb that was slain, who is the lion. I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see the truth about the world that we live in and the truth about the universe the way that it is, to see the greater truth. And I pray that you would open our eyes to see it, and embolden and strengthen our hearts and our steps and our hands to live for it. We trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.